you got uh, a moment, you can go ahead and turn there. Second Corinthians chapter 6. It's not often that we, uh, I'm going to try to multitask here. It's not often that we actually go into the epistles during the lectionary readings. But uh, today I found a very, um, a very good passage. Of course, all of Scripture is a good passage. But I found it very interesting. And one, if I can just be confessional and honest and upfront with everybody, is one that I do not do well. Here we see Paul is writing a letter to the Corinthians for the second time. And he's addressing a couple of issues. And we see Paul all over his epistles, all over his letters, always kind of being opposed by the churches that he went and preached to. Like in Galatians, we see in Galatians that Paul came to Galatia, he preached Christ and him crucified, they were saved, they believed, they were encouraged, then he left, and then other people came in behind him, namely some Jews, some Pharisees, that said, well, Jesus was a Jew, Therefore, you have to live by Jewish law in order to be saved, which contradicted the message that Paul first delivered to them. So Paul heard about this and began to write a letter to them, reclaiming them again for this, the gospel that they had once originally believed, saying that was the counterfeit gospel. Let me give you the one, uh, the, the true gospel. And so we see that in Galatians. Here in Corinthians, we have something very similar happening. See, Paul had come and already visited them once, wrote them a letter, and then now some other people uh, came, to, came and preached to these people in, in Corinthians who seemed to be well put together, wealthy. Uh, they were very articulate publicly. And so they seemed to not have to go through all the beatings and the dire situations that Paul himself was going through. And so as they were comparing Paul's ministry and the ministry of these better put together people, these better public speakers, these more wealthy people, they said, ah, we don't know that Paul is actually an apostle. We don't know and believe his message as to be true, and we don't even know if he is called into the ministry. They began to doubt him. Matter of fact, they went so far as just to reject him. And this is where we're at in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 6. This brings us to where Paul is personally writing to them, commending his ministry to the Corinthians. He begins this part of the letter by stating that we are fellow workers with God in ministry of reconciliation. And what is this ministry of reconciliation? Well, we have to go to chapter 5, verses 18 and 19 to pick up what Paul is actually beginning to put down. In 18 it says, Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself, through Christ, and gave us a ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their transgressions against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. So here, automatically, as Paul is defending his ministry and commending his ministry, he says, let me just point out what my ministry is all about and what all of our ministries are about. And that is this ministry of reconciliation. How God acted for sinful people by sending his son so that they could be reconciled to him. That's the ministry of reconciliation. That's the gospel. Everything hinges on Jesus Christ. And God the Father did this with no, uh, without asking any of one of us to pay the cost. Matter of fact, God the Father, being a good father, paid it all. 
through the precious blood of his own son because he wanted a relationship with his rebellious children and to bring them back to right ways of living, to make them sober again, to reclaim them for his family. And so this is what Paul says. First and foremost, this is the ministry we're called to. Not any other ministry, it's the ministry of reconciliation. That first, Christ has already accomplished the work of reconciliation. You don't accomplish the work, Jesus accomplished it all and all of his work upon the cross. So it was so satisfying to God that he raised him from the dead and now we get to have eternal life because Jesus lives and reigns forever. But we share in this work of reconciliation. And that's where we're going to spend most of our time. But as Christ does the work of reconciliation, we have the word of reconciliation that we're to speak to one another and what we're to share with the rest of the world. This is why Paul begins in chapter 6. He says, we, from the very beginning, we are working together with him. I find this a very fascinating statement. We are working together with him. I remember when I was a little boy, um, I always wanted to work with my dad. Now, my dad was kind of a, a, a grouch of a man, a, a kind of a, a brisk man, if you will. And so I always wanted to kind of please him, but it gave me great joy when he went under the house to start working and tinkering with things. I'm pretty sure he didn't know what he was doing, but he was tinkering with things, and I would just get to hold the screwdriver, or he'd tell me to hold the hammer. And I enjoyed that, and I don't know why, but I, I know I did. And this is exactly what we get to do, is that God can do it all by himself. He is God, he's all-powerful, he's all-knowing, but yet he shares with his family what he is doing in creation. And we get to work alongside dad in this moment. And not just any random tasks. Not just anything like, hey, go take out the trash, go wash the dishes, or go mow the yard. But the most important task of reclaiming and growing his family, the ministry of reconciliation. See, I'm going to do the work, but I just want you to go and proclaim that work and get more people to come into the family. And so I just have to pause here in chapter 6 as we begin to dive in and see what Paul is really getting to, how he commends his ministry, is that this ministry that Paul is commending is saying, I'm working alongside with God. This isn't something I conjured up. This isn't something I created in and of myself. My ministry is not my own. My ministry was given, my task was given to me by God. And that's his apostleship that he's proving to people who have rejected him. Now, we're going to look at two things today. And uh, I aim to give a fathers the great gift, and that is time with their family. So this isn't going to be a long sermon, but I've said that before, and we, we know how that went. But I, and I say that because uh, I feel like what Paul is talking about here in chapter 6 is something that I personally have struggled with even just yesterday, even with this week, about being in ministry, about commending the, my actions throughout the week, com commending my own life and what I'm called to do and what we're all called to do. I feel like there's two things that Paul's pointing out here in chapter 6 that we all need to pay attention to and really grasp what he's trying to say. See, Paul is pointing out that he commends his ministry, that this is how the Corinthians can know that he's an apostle 
and a true laborer in the ministry because he replicates Jesus' own ministry, which demonstrates how to serve and not compromising any standards that God has established. And those are the two points we're going to look at. In chapter 6, we're going to look at how is it that Paul commends his ministry and how he serves and how he stands. This is what makes all of us influential and effective in the ministry. And so I think it's a great measuring stick by which all believers in Jesus can begin to measure their lives. Am I being appropriate? Am I being effectual? Am I being influential in the ministry we're all called to? And it's two things that, uh, well, it's a plethora of things, but namely two things that he says in this chapter, how you serve and how you stand. Let's first look at how you serve. How you serve takes place in verses 4 through 10. Let's read those. Paul says, but in everything, commending ourselves as servants of God. Hang in there right there. Let's pause right there. Servants of God. This is how everything else he's about to say, it flows from this. Service to God. Service of God. But in everything, commending ourselves as servants of God in much endurance and afflictions and hardships and distresses and beatings and imprisonments and tumults and labors and sleeplessness and hunger and purity and knowledge and patience and kindness and the Holy Spirit and genuine love and the word of truth and the power of God by the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and the left by glory and dishonor by evil report and good report, regarded as deceivers and yet true, as unknown yet well-known, as dying yet behold, we live, as punished yet not put to death, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making rich, as having nothing yet possessing all things. Here, Paul shows us that this is how I commend my ministry, by showing and displaying and replicating how Christ served. Christ came, took a form of a bondservant, and served those who would punish him, served those who were sinners, who ate and fellowshiped with them to save them. And so he is like-minded and is going to commend his ministry in the same ways. First and foremost, when things aren't right or fair, He's going to continue to serve the Lord. That it doesn't matter if he's being afflicted or having hardships or in distress or being beaten or finds himself in prison. I'm going to continue to entrust myself and serve the Lord and commit myself to the ministry. No matter if it's right or if it doesn't seem fair. You know, if there are any children here, this is what I hear all the time. And I even heard this yesterday. When a sibling gets something that the other one doesn't, they always like, that's not fair. <laughs> I hear it. I've said this. When my sister would get something and I wouldn't, like the king size candy bar, and, or her candy bar was bigger than mine because I love candy, it's not fair. I deserve another one. If you watch Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, um, that one's all about, that's not fair. I want it now. But that is not the characteristic of one who follows after Christ and replicates the attitude of Christ. Christ came to serve. If there is any fairness, if there's anything that's unfair, 
Isn't it the story of Christ? Literally, never. Here, so I dialed it down to 60 because it wasn't keeping up. There's some light. And so I was like, maybe I blew something up. I don't know. Uh, so I apologize. I'm just trying to make people happy here. Um, that wasn't right or fair. And here we go. What is going on? I feel like, man, we need a reviewer emergency protocol. So like, nah, how do I get people out of this building all of a sudden? All right. Focus. Oh, Lord, help me. All right. When things are right and fair, and talking about Jesus' life, if there's one life that, that reflects complete unfairness, it would be Jesus' life. And how did he endure that? He endured that with the joy set before him, going to his death for people that beat him and hate him and spoke horrific things about him, and yet he did not revile in return. He entrusted himself to his father and said, I'm serving you, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And so Paul says, this is how we, too, commend our ministry. This is how we work in the family business. We, if, it's not, if it doesn't seem right or fair, we're not going to complain about it. When there, when there are situations that are outside of control, when people are taking advantage of us, when people are seeking to ruin our life, we're going to continue to serve God and live in to our ministry. Second, when it comes to labors and sleeplessness and hunger, that's when we're weak. We continue to serve. This is the one where I had to pause because I have only two hours of sleep, have so much to do just like everybody else does, and I skipped a couple meals. And I am not okay when I skip a couple meals. And I found my attitude, even about church, to be pathetic, to be poor. I don't want to do this. I'm hungry. I'm tired. I'm exhausted. I have a million things going on in my mind. The labor is really hard. Nobody seems to be wanting to help me out, and that's not true, but the saying gets a hold of me. But even in those moments, Bruce, you need to tighten up. You need to ride it out and serve the Lord. You're not doing this to have a great day. You're doing this because this is what you've been employed to do, and I'm walking with you. You are joining me in my work. And sometimes you're going to be tired, you're going to be hungry, your labor is going to be hard, but we're going to serve the Lord and entrust ourselves to him. And you're going to move forward in your ministry. That's what a good ministry is all about. That's what Christ's ministry and us call to Christ's ministry, that's what we do. So not only when things are right and fair are we going to continue to serve the Lord and when we're weak, but also when we're tempted in purity and in knowledge, when people are speaking lies to us or when it seems like that counterfeit gospel is coming around and it sounds really good and we're being tempted to go away from the truth instead of to hold to it. When we're tempted in our own purities, we're going to hold true. We're going to continue to serve the Lord because we don't serve ourselves. Not only when we're tempted, but when we're tested, when our patience is tested, when our kindness is waning, when, the, when we were going to live according to this flesh, not the Holy Spirit, when we're tested and really given genuine love rather than lip service, when we're tested in the word of truth of really challenging and seeking to believe it and the power of God and spiritual for, 
uh, warfare. There's spiritual warfare all around. And when we're tested and when we're tried and when we're tempted and when it doesn't seem right or fair, we're going to continue to serve this, in this ministry of reconciliation that we forfeit our own rights and we said, it doesn't matter because there's another person that has to be reconciled to, to my dad. I have to go. That's my job. I don't stop. It's not about the guy who has it all together, who doesn't, about, it's not the guy that ha, doesn't endure the afflictions or the beatings. You might be beaten. You might have to receive afflictions for the ministry, and that doesn't discredit Paul's ministry, and it doesn't discredit ours. It turns things upside down as we're going to look. It's a great paradox. God does not do the th things the way the world does it, because that all led to sin and, and fallenness. God does it according to righteousness and goodness. And so it looks counterintuitive. It's a complete paradox of what the world does. God turns things upside down. And the greatest way that I have come to know this is the death of Jesus. Through death comes life? That seems not logical. Death is the end. Death ceases. It stops. God says, no. Through death, I bring to life. you got to continue to serve in this ministry of reconciliation, reconciliation regardless of what is said about you. Now, this one hurts. Because, man, I was in sixth grade. I moved from uh, Alaska in 1992 down to the lower 48 in a little southern country town of uh, Madison, Indiana. And the first day, I wore my football jacket with the big old Alaska thing on the back, and I thought I was cool. I had a flat top since the third grade, so I was even cooler. And so I'm walking... And then I go to the bathroom, and there is Ricardo, who says, I had my, my nickname was Bruiser from football, so, uh, you know, I was pretty cool, right? And he goes, oh, yeah, Bruiser, Bruiser, the two-ton loser. And I was like, oh, man, there goes every, any date I was ever hoping to have with, with Amber. You know, like, I, I, just, I was just like, I was brought to my knees in shame because it was like, man, I'm already being made fun of. I have not heard any nice thing. And it's those moments in our life. When bad things are said about you, when people don't like you, when people reject you, like Paul is experiencing here, because they see that this guy has everything together. This guy wears suits. This guy seems to have financial stability. This guy doesn't seem to find himself in jail or being beaten. And so we, we pray to this guy, Paul, yeah, I don't know. I don't trust your ways, buddy. You seem to be kind of all over the place, and plus that guy's a better public speaker than you. And he says, uh-uh. No. Regardless of what's said about us or what people might think about us, whether glory or dishonor, whether evil or good report, whether being called a deceiver or even being true, that doesn't deter our attitudes or our striving to reconcile people to God. So this is how we serve. This is the ministry that Paul says he's called to. This is how he is commending his ministry before people that are rejecting him. Can anybody relate to being rejected for the sake of Christ? Because maybe you don't possess great quality gifts, or you're not so eloquent or articulate, or maybe you just don't know what to think or what to say, or 
you're not the, the, the top man on the totem pole. Maybe people are rejecting you. That's okay. That means you're replicating the ministry that Jesus set before us to replicate. They rejected him. And what happened to him in the end? God said, that's my son. Well done. And he raised him from the dead. And that's what Paul's getting at. We serve like Jesus. We replicate our ministries towards Jesus' ministry. Second, how we stand. Do we compromise? Is this something that, are we, are we just going to tickle people's ears? Are we just going to seek to please them in any way, shape, or form in hoping to reconcile them in this ministry? Is that how we go about this ministry of reconciling people to God? No, we have standards. Who establishes those standards? God himself. He demonstrated those standards through the life of Christ, and he has even given us a word by which we can make sure we measure these standards in right living. Look at verses 14 through 16 with me. This is the second point. First, how we serve in this ministry of reconciliation commends us, but also how we stand in it. Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? How we stand is important. And I know right off the bat, even as I was reading this, it's like, well, but we're, Jesus even ate and fellowshiped with sinners. It's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about the conduct of your own life. You can't say, I believe in Jesus and still live like an unbeliever. It doesn't equate. It actually means that all that Jesus did is ineffective. It has no merit in my life. It's just the word that I say and then it's gone. And this is actually how Paul even says, like, don't receive this grace, this, this work you get to do alongside with the Father of this ministry of reconciliation, don't receive this grace, salvation that was wrought by the work of Christ and him on the cross. Don't just do that in vain, like it's nothing, like it's meaningless. And then therefore display for them, those who are outside, that we're going to go and tell to reconcile to God. If you're living differently, they're going to say, well, you don't look any different. You don't act any different. There's no change. So therefore, if there's no change, if there's no effectual work happening when one believes in Christ, if there's no real means to a better and right way of living, if there's no sober living, if there's no power in the gospel, then why do I, do I need to waste my time accepting it? I can continue. If you look like me, I'm going to continue to do what I do. Paul says we commend not only in how we serve, but how we stand. You fellowship with unbelievers, but there should be a specific difference that, that gets the unbeliever to say, I want that life. I'm tired of the misery my life brings. This guy seems to find joy in the midst of sorrow. And that's why Paul lists all of these paradoxes. He says you have to first and foremost establish boundaries in your life. If you feel like you're being pulled down by unbelievers, you need to be strengthened. 
You need to create boundaries in your life to say, this, I have to live in this standard, first and foremost. I have a ministry that I got to tend to, which means I have to tend to my life. And whatever it takes to live in those standards is what I'm going to do. So I want to put up those boundaries. And it might look like some of your closest relationships have to have a boundary, a lane by which you are navigating it with. A lot of times, including myself, we invite people in that can often deter us from the way we ought to go. You have to establish boundaries. Have to establish boundaries. Believers do not mingle and live like unbelievers. We establish our boundaries. And partnership. We are to be righteous, right living, right way. And we are given that righteousness through the power of the Holy Spirit. How this works is we believe and confess that Jesus is our Lord. And if Ephesians 1.13 says, then you get the Holy Spirit. And you know what the Holy Spirit does? As we have just seen in part of baptism and what we talked about, that the power of the Holy Spirit is what begins to work in your life so that you can begin to do all that you were ever created to do by God. And it's not something you have to do. It's something you now get to do because the Holy Spirit fills you with that goodness and that, that cheer and that joy. So what, what does righteousness have to do with lawlessness? Consult your conscience for a moment and how you speak and act in lawless ways. Maybe you don't, and that's good. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. That's none of your efforts. That's how you can tell that you have the Holy Spirit because you joyfully want to do what is right. But we do not have partnership. We're not locked arms with lawlessness. We've created a boundary and said, no, we're right. We will go to the lawlessness in order to make them right through proclaiming Jesus Christ and by them believing, them receiving the Holy Spirit. And what fellowship does light have with dark? It doesn't. You think the moment that light enters the room in a completely dark cave is the moment the whole thing is illuminated. There's no fellowship there. One flees when the other one approaches. There's no fellowship. They're not hanging out. They're not having a good time. When our presence comes and we seek to reconcile those who are lost to God the Father, there is an enemy, there is a one who desperately wants to bring them down. There is one who is whispering the, the, the hardest lies to disbelieve. I don't know if you guys discredit Satan very much, but he's very good at what he does. And he speaks lies that appear to be truth to a lot of people. And the only thing that we have to penetrate those lies and to get people to think rightly is the word of God and the power of the gospel to say, no, this is truth, and I speak it to you, and it has the power to save. What reconciliation is there between Christ and the Antichrist? Somebody masquerading as if they themselves are Christ. Did you die on the cross for multitudes? You are the the Antichrist claiming to be the Messiah, and you're not. There is only one Messiah. Jesus Christ himself, the very son of God. And there is nothing 
that we have in harmony with each other. What common things do we actually, when we begin to believe in Christ and begin to live rightly, what things do we share in common with an unbeliever? Really, nothing other than this, that the life I once lived, I lived in sin. And now, because of Jesus, I live towards righteousness. You can identify, but that doesn't mean you share a commonality with them. You know who we need to share a commonality with? Each other, being one mind, of one body, of one heart, of one Lord, Jesus Christ, of one baptism. It's the people that you have commonality with. That's how you stand. And then what agreement does the temple of God have with idols? Do you remember the Old Testament story of Dagon? I like to say that. Dagon, right? When they put the Ark of the Covenant in the, the temple of Dagon, you know what happened to Dagon? I guarantee it was not a very good thing for him. There was no agreement between the two. God lowered his idol down, crushed it. God is a jealous God, and you have no other gods. There's no agreement. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. There's one true God. Anything else is falsehood and lie, and God can't do that. God won't do that. He's good. And so this is what Paul says commends his ministry. This is why I'm an apostle. This is the ministry I've been called to. You can observe it because I replicate, it, uh, I replicate the very ministry of Jesus by being a servant of God no matter what situation I find myself, no matter who says anything about me, I'm going to continue to move forward and because of how I stand, the standards and the boundaries that I have. That's how we know that Paul who, by his own admission, commends his own ministry. And it also goes for us, since all of us, he says, are called to the ministry of reconciliation, to work alongside dad. One of my favorite things to say, because it makes, I feel like it kind of sometimes makes me sound smart, is like working in tandem. And immediately my, my thoughts go to riding a tandem bike. And when you ride a tandem, tandem bike, it's kind of cute, but guys, let's be fair. If we're the ones in the front and our spouse or a girlfriend or a female's in the back, we know we're pulling the majority of the weight. But nonetheless, it has the appearance of us working in tandem together riding down the road until we get to the hill, then like, oh, yeah, you're going to have to pull up some extra weight. I kind of liken it, not completely, but that's how we work alongside God. God has done the heavy load, but he still invites us to ride along with him and to pedal even and to work along with him in this ministry of reconciliation. So commend your ministries by serving God in all situations, regardless of what is ever said to you, without compromising any of the standards that God has called you to. That is the point of Paul. And so here, as we continue to close and continue to worship, because we're going to get to communion today, here's some things I want to offer us suggestions in way of response to this message that Paul was writing to the Corinthians, but it's still very effective for us to hear today. One is, first and foremost, pray for illumination about your ministry of reconciliation. Be sensitive to what the Spirit might reveal to you in that passage, much like me, like yesterday, when I was pouring over it, 
and realizing that I had an attitude because I'm tired and hungry and all those other things, I'm going to pay attention to that because I need to go to the Father to help me. I have no strength. I have nothing left to give. If I give anything, it has to be from you. So pray. Pray in your responsibility of your own ministry of reconciliation how it is that the Holy Spirit can increase your effectiveness, increase your influence. Second, in a moment, we're going to be given an opportunity to confess privately, silently, quietly, between you and God, to confess those things that are hindering your ministry something that the Spirit has illuminated in your heart and mind from maybe this passage or maybe where your mind has wandered this morning of something that you may not be doing or something that you need to fix or something, some place you need to go. Or maybe a lot of you just need to start a ministry of reconciliation because you're on the sidelines and you're not going to help Dad at all. Confess those things where you haven't served well or maybe you haven't served at all. Or maybe you were standing on the wrong side of something and you want to reclaim it and get it back to rightness. Confess those things. There is something amazing about confession. I promise you. I promise you there is. There are men in this church that know some things that I often confess. And it's freeing. It's freeing just to get it out. So that I can be, I acknowledge it. I confess it. Paul even says in Romans that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, we will be saved. What is it about having to verbally confess Jesus as Lord that has salvific power? What is it about confessing sin, according to James, that heals us? Getting it out of you. Don't harbor it in. Get it out. Confess those things that are hindering your life and your ministry from serving God. And we're going to be having that moment here in a second. And the good thing is, I, I, sorry, I, the good thing is, is I love hearing when I, when I say in the, in the liturgy, well, good news. Because of Jesus Christ, you are forgiven. And you guys chant it back, you are forgiven. Oh, man. I just rush, I want to rush to that point because I need to hear today that I'm forgiven. I really do. And God tells us in the spirit, but he also says, your brothers and sisters are going to tell you. So know that it's true. I'm excited to that. We're going to get that as soon as possible. Tell, and then tell somebody. Tell somebody what you need to change and strive to join God this week in this ministry that we're all called to. Maybe you need to create boundaries this week in order to establish better uh, ministry. Maybe you need to tell somebody, hey, I, gotta, I feel the Spirit is telling me to go do this. Tell somebody, I'm going to go do this this week. I need you to hold me accountable. That's a way you can respond today. And lastly... Prepare to come to this table. We are going to take communion together. And just don't make it a routine gesture. But sit there and think, I'm about to take this bread. And I'm about to dip it in this juice. And it's all a symbol.
How unreconciled to God. Don't blow and walk by that moment. Pause. Take it in. Breathe it in. Sober your mind over it. Let it be impactful. We're also going to remember our baptism. One thing we do here at Harvest Point is we take the photo of the baptism. We print it up real big in a nice frame, and we give it to the person who's been baptized so they can always remember their baptism. They can always remember that we are family. When I went over to the Blaylocks yesterday, I told Emma, I go, what I'm excited is that as young as you are, you're going to get this, and then you can put this in your first apartment or your dorm room. When you get married and you have children, you can show them that I'm a part of the family of God, and this is the day that that happened. And I can remember it. If you go to my office, I have bows hanging up because we have to, I haven't taken it home and hung it yet. Um, but it's, it's awesome to see that visualness of knowing, especially on days, I'm like, I don't deserve to be part of the family of God. To know that my baptism tells me otherwise. So you're going to be offered the opportunity to remember your baptism by putting your hand in there and just not dunking yourself all over again, but just remembering your baptism. These are ways we can respond to the message today. Perfect. Right on cue. I was like, man, I always forget to invite the, the children back in. But uh, I'm going to pray, and then uh, I'm going to ask uh, Jack uh, to come forward. We're going to get ready to um, uh, take communion. But I'm going to pray and just give the, the children a little bit more time to come in, and then uh, we'll go through the liturgy and begin communion. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much. On this day that we celebrate fatherhood, that we have one who is an example for us, a good, loving, right father, who we get to call daddy, and who has not spared any expense to come and rescue and reclaim us and to make us his own. Father, I pray that every father here would replicate you, would image you, would mirror you to their children and to the world around them. May us fathers who are following after you take this world and claim it for you. May our influence over our families and over those that uh, we see each and every day in our work and elsewhere May our influence be great and strong through the power of the Holy Spirit to proclaim your word, which has the power to save. Father, I pray that all of us together will be one mind and one heart in this ministry of reconciliation that you've called us to. That, Father, that regardless of what is said, regardless, regardless of what is done, whatever situation we find ourselves in, no matter what temptation or test comes our way, that, Father, we will be faithful in serving you and serving in this ministry and without compromising any of the standards that you've established us to have in our lives because it is good and right for us to have them. Help all of us to live into that. Fill us with your Holy Spirit that we might live and walk as you do. 
Father, be with us now as we remember the way we have this reconciliation with you because of your son who died on the cross for us and therefore reconciled us to you. Help us to remember that we are part of your family. Father, we adore you, we honor you, we glorify you, we exalt you, and we praise you. And it's in his name, in Jesus' son's name, we pray. Amen.